Hey everybody, RK here. It's Squeezer. And we are joined by David Craddock, author of uh, Breakout, a book we bought up at New York Comic Con, how P- App- the Apple II launched the PC gaming revolution. Hello, David. Hey guys, I gotta tell you, I got I, I got so excited hearing that Contra startup sound right at the beginning of the theme music. <laughs> I'm pumped up. Yeah, we figured that's always yep. a good, good way to get us started because when you know when you're kids, obviously you played Contra. Absolutely. Uh, hearing that sound start up was always um, like kind of a war cry for us as kids. It, it was a war cry, and I also felt more confident when I had the Konami code going for me, but excited nonetheless. I, I enter it every time yeah, I do this show. I, I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Squeezer needs 99 lives to get through every Rad Years podcast. I, 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 that and a box of Cheez-Its, yes. and I did it once. <laughs> so... Um, David uh, uh, wrote this great book, and uh, it's it's so beautiful, David. The the whole the the from the cover to all the you know the glossy, the pictures, the artwork you have in this book. Um, can you tell us a little bit about like where the idea came from and how the the book all started to to come to shape? Sure. Uh, well, Breakout was published by Schiffer Publishing, and the idea for it. Uh, came, I guess its parents were partly my, uh, my youth and some, uh, you know, a desire to write another book, uh, but also uh, a bookmark that came fluttering out of another book. I went to my local bookstore, which is a books, uh, books a million one afternoon to get some ideas for, uh, some computer self-help books I wanted to write. And while I was there kind of leafing through titles, I noticed a hardcover, book in the design of an NES cartridge. Uh, the author is Brett Weiss, another Schiffer publishing author. And I believe the title is The 100 Greatest Console Games from 1977 to 87. So that caught my eye. Oh, wow. Um, I was born in the early 80s, so I didn't even start playing games until probably around 88 or 89. But, you know, I, I'm a student of the game, pun intended, and had <laughs> gone back and played a lot of those. So I picked it up and wanted to see how Brad had ranked them. And when I opened it, this bookmark came fluttering out, and it was from the publisher, Schiffer Publishing, saying, hey, you know, to any authors out there, we always entertain pitches. So if, if you've got them, send them our way. And on the drive home, I kind of dug through my mental archives. Uh, I've been a professional writer for the past, mm, going on 14 years. Uh, oh, wow. I've done a few books. I do journalism. Uh, and I was looking to write another video game theme book. And, and one of the ideas I've been kicking around was a book about my favorite Apple II games. It was the first computer I remember using growing up. And so I kind of mentally formulated the pitch for the book that became Breakout on that drive home, which was about 10, 15 minutes, sat down, hammered out a book proposal, uh, went over it a few times, fired it off, and then forget, forgot about it. And about a month and a half or so later, someone from uh, Schiffer Publishing, uh, Jesse Martha, one of the acquisitions editors there, contacted me and said, hey, we'd, uh, we like this idea and we'd like to work with you. So uh, that kicked off some negotiations, advances, and so forth. And um, that was all, all of that happened in May of 2015. So I, I spent uh, a good four to six months 
doing interviews, and, and then I started writing chapters. I was writing chapters and researching and interviewing, kind of all juggling all those plates as I went. What I would do is I would completely uh, research and uh, complete interviews for a particular game, and then I would write. Uh, I would, first, I would outline those chapters, then write them, and then I'd switch gears in the afternoon or evening or whatever to do more interviews and research for other chapters. So it was it was this whirlwind process. Uh, and the Apple II meant a lot to me growing up, so it was a really fun project to write. I bet. Uh, and, and I know some of the interviews were tough to get, obviously, the, the people involved in make, like Waz and Jobs. Yeah. And so you would just uh, interview, uh, I don't know, go up other interviews of them or talk to people who, who, who interviewed them, I guess? Yeah, it was kind of a, a grassroots movement. Um, what I... Uh, at practice, I started with my uh, for my 2013 book, Stay Well and Listen, uh, which delves into it's the first book in that series and delves into the history of Blizzard and Diablo. Was um, I, I met some people, and through them, I met more people, and and yet more people, and anyone I couldn't meet through uh, contacts, I I just kind of stalked <laughs> on right, Facebook, right. Twitter, LinkedIn, <laughs> what have you. Um, the the interviews for Breakout were particularly difficult to get though because. You know, a lot of the Apple, the Apple II's heyday was from uh, June of 77 through the early 90s when Apple finally pulled the plug on, on the Apple II line with the, uh, the 2GS. And what that meant for me was there were a lot of people who made games, but they never really looked at it as a career. A lot of people that I talked to and wrote about in Breakout were just kind of, you know, they were learning to program and, you know, nobody like daydreams of writing the next word processor. Obviously you <laughs> want to cut your teeth on video games. And right. so they did something for fun and they published it, maybe, you know, dropped the disc in a Ziploc baggie, sold a few copies and then moved on with their lives and, and other careers. So, you know, it, it's one thing to, contact someone who used to work for Blizzard because they're probably still in the games industry, but it was a whole other thing to track down people who um, maybe made one game and then just kind of dropped off the face of the earth. So it was uh, definitely, definitely had to, to bust out my, my journalistic chops and, and learn how to track people down and approach them. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people I wanted to talk to uh, had passed away. And that was kind of one of my criteria for the books. Uh, I did not want to uh, write about a game if I couldn't talk to the person or, or several people from the team who made it because otherwise, you know, I might end up sounding like I was regurgitating a Wikipedia article or something. That's what we do best here, trust us. <laughs> um, and that's what I found most interesting and I got r really excited when I was flipping through and I went, I, I noticed in, um, I, guess, I don't know if it was in the forward or the table of contents and I saw it and said, flip to the uh, appendices, is that the word? Appendages? Correct. Appendices. Appendages are what we have. Okay. Um, <laughs> and th for like full bonus interviews. Right. And so I did, and I flipped to the back, and I was going through and just actually just reading the your interviews with these guys. I went through and like I saw uh, your interview with Troy, Troy Miles. Um, I was mm -hmm. a I was a big I'm a big Fallout fan. That was my my franchise. So like anything that Interplay did, you know, I was interested in. And uh, he was, you know, he designed a Neuromancer, um, which mm -hmm. is just um see, getting to hear it like in their words was, was a really cool addition to it um 
to the book itself. I, I thought yeah. it was just it was it seemed yeah. it made it seem very personal. Like the, these were more personal stories about people making games than just um, the games themselves. It was more about the people involved. Yeah, that's kind of another one of my trademarks. Uh, trademarks that I've developed over the past uh, decade plus. Um, I never want to just kind of give dry you know, recitations of a game's features or graphics engine or so forth. I, I like to concentrate on the people because the way I look at it is, you know, my grandmother uh, read Stay Wellness and then break out and enjoyed them. And yes, she's, she's a little biased, I'd say, but, uh, <laughs> She, she told me she what she liked first and foremost was that these were stories about people. You know, she's not a gamer, but uh, she enjoyed learning about how these people, uh, you know, had dreams and, and kind of realized those dreams by, you know, getting a hold of computers and then learning their ways around programming. And and she found all that interesting. Um, I also uh, I really love to tell stories. I do some fiction writing as well, but I, I just I love uh, being able to write in a literary style so that real stories read like stories i think it's a great way to pull readers in if, if you feel like you're you're walking alongside these people as they make their games and just kind of live their lives i think you feel more connected to them than you would just reading a, a biography style profile was was there any story uh, when you were going through your digging and then talking to these people uh, was there any obviously there's stuff you didn't know but what was the one that really like blew your mind the most well, I grew up loving Prince of Persia, but before I wrote this book, I did not realize it started as an Apple II game, much less that it completely tanked when it first released. Uh, I, I first played Prince of Persia with uh, in fourth grade. A friend of mine, uh, his dad took us to a Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego live show, which was pretty cool. Oh, the and- the the. The game show? The game show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we got to, it was kind of like an exhibition thing. It wasn't a taping for an episode, but we went, and the host was there. I don't remember his name, and they had, like, three kids who were contestants, and they answered a few trivia questions, and then they ran around, like, the giant map of the U.S. on the floor and, like, put the markers on the states. Right. Like they did at the end of every episode. That was, that was a cool thing to see. Uh, the real highlight of the trip for me came on the drive home. I w- we went to, uh, the show was in Cleveland. We're both Ohio natives. Um, and on the way back, we swung by a CompUSA store uh, because by that time, you know, uh, my friend Jeff and I were both computer geeks and right. we love to look at games and all sorts of stuff. And at the end of one aisle, we saw Prince of Persia running on a Macintosh. And this was, he still holds this over my head because as a gamer, I'm like, oh, well, you play games on Mac. I'm sure you enjoy Solitaire. You know? <laughs> uh, but, you know, Prince of Persia on Mac was the superior version to the PC version. A few weeks later, an uncle of mine, uh, my uncle Brad, who's been very important to me, sent me the PC version of Prince of Persia. And it was the same game, the same sound effects, but the graphics were so much less detailed. Well, as it turns out, uh, I found that, you know, Jordan Mechner, like many of the people, most of the people I wrote about in Breakout, um, got his programming chops writing on an Apple II. That's where he learned. And Prince of Persia originated on that platform. But by the time it came out in 1989, pretty much everyone but school systems had moved on from the Apple II. They were using right. PCs or the Macintosh. Um, and so, you know, Prince of Persia just completely it sank like a stone and it wasn't until broderbund licensed the game to some japanese companies who took the graphics and uh, updated them that the game that that breathed new life into prince of persia what broderbund did was they saw that it was doing well in japan and they took 
the Japanese computer's character sprites and environments, ported them over to the Mac, put it in a trapezoidal-shaped box just to kind of, you know, catch the consumer's eye, and the game just took off from there. So it, it's funny that without Japan and the Macintosh, which is not a gaming computer no. at all, it's kind of ironic that, you know, without those uh, elements, those variables in play, Prince of Persia might not have ever become one of the biggest franchises in gaming. Wow. Yeah, I, I mean, you you just mentioned about like the the marketing involved, what they did to get attention, like the the trap, the box and stuff. They really did. Uh, like when we at our place of work, when we do, it's almost like a, a running joke. We almost an insult when we say you're doing the best with what you got. <laughs> in in this case, and going through the book and reading it, it's it, it's a, a great compliment, I think, to a lot of these guys that they were doing the best with what they got. Like they didn't have. Uh, the the computing power and the memory to to the, well, the, the workarounds same, that they had to do to create some of these games. The was constraint impressive. was almost it was it was a constraint, but it was almost it, it allowed for innovation, creativity, in the programming. Yeah. and and, and exactly. to and to make smarter games. Yeah. I think you know, um, yeah, like something no, like mean, Wasteland uh, and 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 games that you couldn't play at an arcade, games that you would pump hours into versus quarters into. Right, exactly. And in fact, it's it's funny. Um, one of the things that uh, Doug and Gary Carlson, the co-founders of Broderbund, told me was, you know, early on, and some other developers I talked to for the book mentioned this, early on, a lot of people uh, made a small fortune just kind of ripping off arcade shooters like Asteroids uh, and putting them on Apple II because, you know, the games industry was so new that publishers like Atari and Activision didn't even think about uh, protecting copyrights until they noticed that copycats of their games were just raking in money hand over fist and had to put a stop to it. And what that meant, it challenged developers to say, all right, I, I can't just rip off Pong or or a Space Invaders or what have you. I need to actually create some original ideas. But as you say, they had the Apple II was very good for its day, but you know, in retrospect, it looks limited. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, almost every person I talk to for my books, the books and articles I write, I tend to write about older games. Um, they've all said it's kind of the difference between the original Star Wars trilogies and the prequels. Not to upset anyone who enjoyed the prequels. I'm sure, you know, no, all three no, of you. No, no, no. <laughs> feel free to upset them. They deserve to be upset. <laughs> I mean, I is there anyone who'd be upset? Uh, I mean, the Jar Jar Binks fans, fans of the world? I don't think yeah, they exist. You always hope not, but you never yeah, know. You never know. You know. Um, George Lucas had so much money and no one would say no to him and we got the prequels. Whereas when he was on his shoestring budget, the original Star Wars trilogy was so innovative because he kind of had to to make, you know, to work with what he had. Right. Uh, and I think a lot of the best video games, especially ones on the Apple II, benefited from those constraints. You had to be innovative because you had a very small space to work in. Yeah, that's, I mean, I always make that comparison to Kevin Smith. I don't know if you're a fan of the movie Clerks. Yes. Uh, Clerks was genius and innovative because he only had, you know, what he had to work with, like $30,000 off credit cards and, you know, black and white film. And then, you know, Jersey Girl is Jersey Girl when he had $5 million, $10 million and all the... Well, he, he had money to blow on a CGI sheep for Strike Back just for the right, sake of it. Right, right. Yeah, just because he could do it. And so, yeah, that, 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 says, that goes throughout the entire, I'd say, entertainment industry. When you you know you you're forced to come up with some sort of uh, creativity to to work within your constraint, you're often you often do a better job 
Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not really much of a movie or TV person, but I tend to gravitate toward older stuff just because these days, you know, I've talked to a lot of uh, uh, computer graphics geniuses, and I, I certainly don't want to be reductive in describing their work. It takes a lot of knowledge and skill. But if you learn how to use certain software and you, you, you're working for a company with deep pockets, you can learn how to throw pretty much anything up on a computer screen. I, I really love learning about creative products, games, movies, what have you, that came together from you know the proverbial uh, what did i have in my basement you know just just right. kind of picking through things and then using what you had and then coming up with something really creative and fun right so yeah in writing this book um uh, and getting all this information uh, what was your your main goal for the, for people There's, is this a reference like this going through this book it's a great read but this is something that could i feel like could be a textbook in class i, I know just the look of it and i don't cuz and because I love, a, I have a collection of them. I actually love it, and it has that feel to it. But just just by the look of it too, and like just uh, it's a th- it's sturdy, thick, and it smells good too. I might add. <laughs> um, but I'm big in the book sense, so I'm very glad <laughs> you say that. Yeah. Um, but but reading it though is a pleasure to read. Right. Like it, it going back to like the personal stories, but it does when you open up, you feel like you could reference it. Like, right. It's a good reference. It is yeah. a good reference. And I mean, book. especially yeah. for us, because you know we thoroughly like to go through other people's work and. Basically, are, <laughs> did Harvard call you yet? Are they teaching this in, in colleges yet? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Right before you guys swung through the booth where I was signing uh, at Comic-Con, I met a professor from NYU uh, who I think worked in their film department. And she she took a, you know, she flipped through the book. She read some samples online and she said, hey, you know, this is the sort of thing our department is looking for. I haven't um, I contacted her and haven't heard back yet. So hopefully she wasn't just blowing smoke up certain places. But um um, that was certainly my goal was just to tell entertaining stories because I think I met uh, at a family function a few years ago. I met a kid who 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 came up to me and he was like, "Oh, you like video games?" And I was like, "Yeah, I write about them." He's like, "So Halo was the first first person shooter, right?" <laughs> I was like, oh, kid, nothing oh, yeah, against yeah, Halo, yeah. but right. I think that especially these days, it kind of reminds me of the scene in Back to the Future 2 where Marty plays that uh, light gun game in the arcade right. and kids mm-hmm. say, it's like a baby's toy. Like I, I really believe in knowing your roots and knowing where you come from. Mm-hmm. don't want to do it in sort of a, a didactic, I'm lecturing you sort of way. I want to make these stories fun and entertaining for really people of all ages, from my, my grandmother in her 80s to – uh, you know, maybe the next generation of game designers who are like, hey, I want to make a platform or how was Prince of Persia made or, hey, I want to make a, an RPG uh, hinge that hinges on, uh, you know, moral choices. Uh, let's let's find out about early Ultimas and Wasteland and then Bard's Tale and stuff like that. I really wanted to make this just entertaining so that that all readers could enjoy it, but specifically people interested in, in games and, and kind of where we came from as an industry. Yeah, I think like I, I don't know. It, it's important to me. Like it, I, I've been accused of being a grumpy old man um, which on I, this podcast on specifically, this po- I, which I am. <laughs> um, but I do. I kind of. I sometimes I take on that whole curmudgeon back in my day, or you kids don't appreciate. But like yeah. my thing is, I, I I want them to. Like I, I have a young daughter, like too young to even pick up a controller. But like my thing is, if she's gonna play games, I like I will have 
sitting there. I will have my <laughs> NES that, you know, she'll just stumble Not across. Not the classic either. The actual my, cart my, loading. My, She's going to have to old NES. blow She's the dust out to, of those cartridges. Yeah, jam a pen <laughs> in there and smack it a couple times at the reset button and really appreciate how to boot it up. But I... I I, I want her to kind of grow with it like I did, even if it's at an accelerated pace, but just to get a feeling of appreciation. Because I think to, to play something now um, and, and not play anything before and then kind of go back and be like, oh, well, this doesn't look nearly as good. Yeah, it might not look as good, but I guarantee it's just as challenging, if not if maybe not even more, more so. Yeah. I, I went on, I, my favorite thing to do is go on, and I think it was on Amazon, someone was selling a copy of Super Mario Brothers 3. And it was a parent gave it a one-star review uh, saying that it's too hard for their kid. And when they lose all their lives, they have to start the game all over again, and it would upset them. <laughs> and I just lost my mind. Man, they would yeah, not no, like Contra. It's, it's, um, to me, it's also important just to, um, to describe how people make things because, you know, kind of backtracking a little bit, walking back a comment I made earlier you know, yeah, I, I think computers are powerful and it's it's always nice to have deep pockets, but making things is just hard, especially as technology evolves because you have more resources to work with, which means you need to be more selective in how you work with them. You have people whose expectations are higher. Working things is hard. And I think it's it's always worth showing uh, showing people, especially maybe younger generations, whether or not they aspire to make games, like, hey, if you ever want to do anything, it's really hard. And so here's how some people made their things. Yeah, it's it's funny. Uh, the story, reading the story about how they made Oregon Trail just blew my mind. The, mm -hmm. the teletype <laughs> and pulling that system out, like typing bang in to, to hunt yeah. And, yeah. And, and waiting for your response to be typed out. And then those guys sitting in their apartment over a course of, I think, a weekend, and, yeah. and writing writing the code in basic, like write, handwriting it, and then typing it all in and getting a punch card to save it. <laughs> uh, that that it, and then just thinking it was just a throwaway thing, just mm -hmm. to to teach the Oregon Trail. Like they were never planning really to. I, I was amazed at the amount of detail and accuracy that they were obsessed over. Oh yeah, to yeah. They how they much they went in and poured over a minutia of of actual history of the Oregon Trail apparently to uh, get it as accurate as like they wanted the algorithm to be as accurate as possible. Mm -hmm. Just, just the reading that and knowing that that's a game that we, most of us who are around our age grew up playing in, in school. Like it was the one thing sure. on our school computer and second, you, third yep. grade. And we would fight over that, that one computer in the classroom, just like they did over the teletype. Yeah. And, <laughs> and now you can get it on your iPhone and you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's not, people could program on their MacBook in their backpack and save it all to a thumb drive. But you know, be, before it was, it was on a, the punch card. If they only knew the whole <laughs> the punch card and the teletype, <laughs> you know, that's... Yeah. No, that's actually one of my favorite chapters. I think for me, it, I always go back and forth between the um, uh, the Oregon Trail chapter and the Prince of Persia chapter just because, you know, I also played Oregon Trail growing up. And I think I don't have a lot of experience playing edutainment games today. But no. back then, the appeal of games like Math Blaster, Oregon Trail, and Carmen San Diego to me was that I was learning... But it was secondary. It felt so different from your mom sitting you down and saying, "Okay, we're doing flashcards for half an hour." Right. You know, you were you were playing a game, and you're also learning. When I played Carmen San Diego, when I was I think eight or nine, I was at you know in my grandma's reference uh, reference room and and asking you know, parents, grandparents, whoever was around, "Hey, help me look up this clue." Like I felt like a detective. I didn't feel like I was right. studying yeah. for mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. or a history test. I felt like a detective. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I remember the first time I came in contact with Carmen Sandiego. It was it was we'd go to the mall every weekend, and my dad my dad was a ham radio operator. So you know, I grew up. Oh, cool. A family of nerds. My grandfather's a ham. My brother, I was the only one who, who was more into the computers and, and television industry instead of just hamming. But we'd go to Radio Shack every weekend, and there was Tandy's in there, and they'd be, they'd have, they'd be showing off Carmen Sandiego. It came in that big box, which usually, depending on which version it was, had the reference, you know, the almanac or then. For sure. Yeah. So I was like, Dad, I need to get this. And he's like, well, I don't, that's an edu- you know, edutainment. That's an education game, Iron. I don't think that's an actual video game. <laughs> He's like, oh, all right. Then this was after we our first like actual PC aside from the Commodore 64 was one of those Tandy deskmates that had yeah. like the eight discs you had to pull in and out <laughs> to go between the software. But, <laughs> but then we actually got an actual PC, you know, running Windows 3.1 or whatever. So my dad who had to track down a version that worked with our computer. It wasn't it wasn't as easy as it is nowadays. <laughs> you know, you had to get one that would you know work with your computer. Mm-hmm. So he tracked one down, and I yeah. You know, I was obsessed with it. I, I played it, and then I found out you could get it for Nintendo, but it wasn't as good as the computer one. The right, PC version right. was sure. was terrific. Yeah, and I was, Carmen San Diego was probably my favorite ever ed- edutainment game. Uh, yeah, I, and it's so expansive. It felt like the edutainment corollary to an RPG. You know, you, yeah, you were leveling up by ranking up as a detective with an Acme, and you were chasing down, you were kind of like putting away all these criminals in this vast organization. It was actually a really long sort of epic journey, and uh, it's funny to think about that. Yeah, yeah, and and, and th- throughout the way, you actually, you accidentally learn stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a byproduct of, of the game. Yeah, I think every Carmen San Diego player has his or her story where the clue just totally stumped them and they made an educated guess. And it's always nice to be rewarded with, you know, that that graphic of a flower pot dropping or a right. knife flying by and you realize, oh, I'm still on the right track. It's exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what like there's a, a process you even mentioned that you had a number of games and you explained that why you had to pick. A, a number of them and why you left a few off because you couldn't talk to the original programmers or developers. W- where did you start? Do you have an idea? Do you remember where you started at and what it took to like, whittle down to where you got? That's a good question. Um, I guess my first criteria was I love to write about the games that I love. So, you know, when I made my initial list, I thought, well, of course, I need to try to write about Oregon Trail, Carmen Sandiego. Uh, oh, Prince of Persia was on Apple. Wow, I'm going to write about that. Um, I don't remember the first person I interviewed. I want to say, well, so Jordan Mechner was hard to track down because he was traveling, shooting a movie at the time. So I only got to talk to him for an hour, but that was just, that was huge. We actually squeezed in our conversations about uh, Karateka and Prince of Persia in that 60 minute window. And I was just giddy the whole time because, you know, playing his games growing up, it was such a huge honor to talk with him. But I want to say some of my first interviews were probably about uh, Broderbund and Carmen Sandiego because uh, Doug Carlston especially is always up for talking about the good old days of, of his company and the Apple II. Gary is a little bit harder to track down. He's always kind of been a jet setter. But uh, that was one of those cases where I talked to Doug first and he was happy to uh, email 
Gary and CC me in on the conversation and say, hey, I don't know if Gary will respond, but here's his contact. Just tell him what you're working on and what you want to talk to him about. Um, it was really just kind of this step-by-step, stone-by-stone process. I, I do want to say probably the Broderbund chapters were some of the earliest I worked on. And then um, whittling that down, uh, like you said, you obviously the, the stuff you liked but then, like, but like, I mean, this this probably could have been like multiple volumes if you wanted to. And are you going to go? But that's another good question. Are you ever going to go back and create uh, extra volumes of, of of Breakout? Because yeah, that, that is a good question. I'll answer both because I, I do realize I didn't finish, uh, I didn't complete the first question. Um, so, so whittling them down, I think the first draft for this book was around five or six hundred pages, and eventually I just had to say, you know, I don't want to write. First of all, I didn't want to write too much about any one genre. I didn't want to stack the book with you know too many RPGs, too many platformers, too many edutainment, whatever. So in addition to thinking about the games that I enjoyed as a kid, I thought, well, what are some of the games that really defined the Apple II? And, you know, uh, Wasteland was almost, that was right on the border because Wasteland uh, was written on the Apple II and it premiered on that system, but it was arguably more popular on newer hardware, such as, you know, the Commodore 64 and the Amiga and DOS and so forth. Um, but from there, I just said, you know, I really, I want to, the more games I add, uh, the shorter the chapters will probably have to be. Schiffer didn't give me a page count, but I knew I probably shouldn't go too far north of 300. So uh, between the games that I wanted to write about and the games that, that everyone talks about as being pivotal to the Apple II, while at the same time adding in uh, important factors to me, such as I need to be able to talk to at least some of the people who worked on these games, that's kind of how I whittled the list down. Uh, I I've been rambling for so long, I don't remember the other question. Uh, if you're thinking of publishing other volumes oh. of the same story, kind of. Yeah, I would I would actually love to because, I mean, there were so many. <laughs> even, uh, even with Breakout as stacked, he said humbly, as I, as, I, <laughs> as I made the table of contents, there are people who look at it and they say, wow, you know, this is really good, but what about games X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, yeah, what about them? Um, I, I do need to go back, and I would love to go back and, and write a second volume, uh, maybe even, you know, another appendix or two uh, to the original book. But I think, I think there's definitely merit for a second or even a third volume because I am very proud of, of Breakout. I think it's one of my, my best works. And if I can hit that same level of quality and continue to actually talk to people who worked on these games, I could, I could see adding on, I could see making it a series that continues indefinitely. Was there one game that was on the bubble that was like real, that was the, the hardest one that the one that will definitely make that second volume. Was there one that just, just barely didn't make the cut? Um, it's funny, you know, I submitted, <laughs> I submitted the manuscript actually like in June of 2016 and then production began. So I haven't thought about that in a while. I'd have to check my notes. I know that there are some games, uh, kind of like Neuromancer that I would like to write about, but that were probably more popular on other platforms that would actually make a good book end of the book because you notice the first few chapters uh, dealing with games such as uh, specifically Oregon Trail and Zork, those games were written on other platforms, but I included them in Breakout uh, because even though they launched uh, before the Apple II existed, 
they were, you know, some of the most popular versions were on that platform. So I think it'd be nice to go and, and tackle more games such as Narmancer that were on Apple II but took off elsewhere. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I made my interview with Troy Miles an interview in the back of the book because I thought, you know, this is really something I would write about where I – uh, well, well, I would kind of give the literary treatment if I were writing a book on Commodore 64 games, because that's really where that uh, where Nermanser took off. Um, but it would probably be just probing more into into games that maybe made extensive use of the Apple II GS. That was by far the most popular iteration of the Apple II. Uh, I think you could even have up to two megabytes of RAM, maybe four or eight. I think that might be stretching it a bit. I'm not Speed exactly demon. sure. Uh, but it, it would be really fun to write about games that really kind of shined on on that last and most powerful uh, iteration of the Apple II platform. Call it the Breakout 2GS. Oh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. See, now it has to happen. Now yes. I have to do it. So um, we're, we're talking to David Haddock here. He, or, I'm sorry, Craddock. I say Haddock. David Craddock, and he's <laughs> author of Breakout, How Apple II Launched the PC Gaming Revolution. Uh, David, where is if the if now people have been listening for half hour, we've been t- great conversations about this book, and they might want to go on and pick one, a copy up. Where is the best place to get a copy? You can find it at any major bookstore. Your your books a millions. Your Barnes and Nobles. Uh, you can also find it on Schiffer Publishing's website. I believe that's schifferbooks.com. Uh, it's not shiverpublishing.com, which you would think, but uh, that's not my decision. Uh, also, you know, I will admit I order a lot of books on Amazon, and Breakout is well represented there. Um, is, is there a, a pretty, uh, Kindle version? There's not a Kindle version. I was just going to mention that. Um, this is I do self-publish some of my books, but, you know, this one I went the traditional publishing route. And I would really like to see a digital version of this book because I think it's kind of an obvious match. You know, a lot of the, the core demographic for this book is technically savvy and they would probably be wanting to read on, on their laptops, their phones, their tablets, what have you. It'd be beautiful Um, on an iPad. But there's not one yet, but the, the, uh, the hardback version, it's really nice. The design team that Schiffer did a tremendous job. You know, you guys mentioned the glossy pages. I picked out, uh, all of the the assets that are included in the book, such as the screenshots, I took most of those myself. Um, the photos, like in the Broderbund chapters, they were donated to me. So I think this is something, that if, I, if I could say so humbly, would look really nice on a bookshelf. Absolutely. Until, if or when there's a Kindle version. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would recommend it. Do you, do you um, if like someone wanted to get a signed copy, do you do that at all? I don't do that at all, and that's something I'd like to talk with Schiffer about. Uh, Comic Con was a really fun experience for me. I'd, I'd done I, I've done book signings before, but not on that scale. Uh, it would be great if we could set up some sort of address. Maybe I'll maybe I'll set that up through my website, where if people want to send me their book and postage, I could sign it to them. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Great. As soon as if you do set that up, let us know. We'll let everyone we'll let everyone know. Uh, oh, awesome! This cool. is definitely. I would recommend this book. I I, I went through it. I, I took it took it out when we got back from Comic Con, and uh, I was at work, and we were in some downtime. We work in television, so there's a lot of hurry up and wait. Oh, so, okay, yeah. <laughs> so I t- we we hurried up and we were set up, and I I took it out and I started reading through, and I was hooked almost the, through the second page. I I knew a lot of the the Steve Jobs and Waz story because I've obviously read Steve Jobs his book, but right. um. You, know, you didn't spend a lot on that. You 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 let it out there. You put what you need to put out there, and you got right. And uh, as soon as you got into the the mech story and the you know, Oregon Trail story, I was I was hooked for the rest of the book. 
Excellent. Thank you very much. And, and I love the the title too. Um, <laughs> the, the love to break because in, in my my top five games of all time, uh, Breakout, call it Arkanoid, if you will, yeah. it Breaking Bricks, whatever. It's one of my top five favorite games of all time. And a lot of people didn't never realize Steve Jobs and uh, Steve Wozniak were responsible for that. Yeah, mostly well, was. Think, mostly was, yeah. I don't think <laughs> yeah. I don't think Steve knew that was was responsible. Right, was was did the work. Steve just got the money for it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. That's definitely why you know I wanted to play with that title because you know Breakout. You know, was built this Breakout game for Atari, and then he later he he wrote the Apple II, and uh, his desire to create Breakout as software rather than hardwired onto a circuit board in an arcade cabinet was you know as you guys know. Uh, a big part of his influence for creating the Apple II. So I, I thought that, you know, that made it kind of a, a nice double entendre for the title. Absolutely. And then one could even say that without the Apple II, that, if you're looking at the devices scattered across our desk right now, I got a, <laughs> uh, the, the new MacBook uh, connected to you. I got an old MacBook recording this. I got an iPad playing our carts and my iPhone's charging. None of this stuff would be here right now without the Apple II. Uh, For sure. And that, that was definitely one of the, the core conceits, my almost my thesis, if you will, of the book was that, you know, hey, I'm not just writing about games that were cool and that I'm nostalgic for, but without the Apple II, uh, you know, the Apple II not only influenced a lot of, of today's developers and today's games, but also uh, hardware, yeah. uh, Apple's lineage of hardware and, and hardware in general. Um, it's funny because the Apple II, when you look at it, it seems like such an anti-Apple product. It was this open box where it was, you know, set out to create a computer where you could pop the lid and you could you could upgrade it by adding more memory cards to add functionalities such as printers and modems. And then Jobs leads the team to do the Macintosh and he wants it to be a closed box. And ever since, really, Apple computers have been closed boxes. But uh, certainly companies such as IBM, uh, Intel really took a page out of the Apple II's playbook. And, and now PC gaming, a huge part of PC gaming is, you know, you can customize everything from your case down to what's inside it. Right, absolutely. That's partially my reason why I just can't do it anymore. Just I, I couldn't afford to keep <laughs> up with PC gaming. Yeah, yeah. It, it's an expensive yeah. hobby. It is really expensive. I, I'm kind of in the same boat. Um, I'm 35, married, I'm writing... 10 to 12 hours a day and when i do want to play a game it's kind of nice to sit down in front of my ps4 or my switch and just press a button and go but i still stay in the game enough that i can you know when i when the time comes to build a new computer i can go to a website like i buy power or cyber power pc and i can just pick out the components and then you know whip out my credit card send someone a list and they're like oh okay i'll build this computer that this guy spec'd out that's a nice happy medium for me <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I remember running, a, I think I gave, I gave up PC completely for Apple in 2001. I'm, I'm also 35. And 2001, I was just frustrated. I was, you know, I had a Pentium 4, and I, I, I was frustrated with Windows at that point. XP was, you know, it was yeah. good, but, it, I, you know, I, I got my first taste of when they really perfected OS X on that lampshade iMac. That was the first one I owned, kind mm -hmm. of like the long base and mm -hmm. the engine. And I haven't looked back since. And I'm not really a PC gamer. I'm like you. I like to, I have my PS4 and I like to just turn it on and get in the GTA, you know, right, right away without right. worrying about, you know, anything else, frame rates or buffering or, you know, anything. So, you know, that's, that's where, and those, I mean, they're building those things almost like supercomputers nowadays. Yeah. 
the yeah, that, sure are. the yeah. Xbox One X or whatever it is, whatever they call it, that thing is for the price you're getting a lot of computer <laughs> you're getting a lot of computer but not a lot of software i guess no. that's another conversation yeah. though <laughs> yeah right yeah you can't do anything but play games on it but you know unless i'm sure there's yeah. someone out there who could put time into hacking it but yeah it's right. um it's weird where i mean i don't think the pc gaming market's ever going to go away uh, but uh, no i don't think so either i mean i think it's been I think it kind of stood at the edge of the abyss over the last five to 10 years. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who, uh, my wife is very computer savvy. She's a, she's a web and graphic designer, but she sits at computers very rarely. She kind of, you know, she has an iPad pro, she has an iPhone and she does almost everything on those. Um, but I still think that there are some things that are just like, I write at a computer. I'm not going to sit here and write breakout on my phone. Right. And, and I think for games, it's still a really nice feeling to boot up a PC game, dial up all the settings to mat, to max, and get a, a really nice smooth 30 to 60 frames per second. It's still pretty gratifying for those who like to tinker under the hood. But at the same time, yeah, you know, guys, we're all we're all old here, or we can all commiserate and, and, and agree that it's just kind of nice to sit down in front of consoles yeah, right. and play. I, I can't lie. I do. I get jealous when when they do the split screens between Xbox, PlayStation, and and PC, and just what it's capable of doing. Yeah. I, I, I every now and then I. I I, I get jealous think, of the mods on GTA. Yeah. I, I, I want I, an Iron Man suit, but I can't have one. <laughs> I, I I tinker with the idea of do I do I go back in the PC gaming just for for the look and and to have yeah the mods the the flexibility that that little that that extra freedom that comes with it. Right. But then I you know I yeah when I by the time I boot it up someone's going to be screaming and uh, little, I have to go up, squeeze that I have to go and. I've gotten so deep into the Mac OS, uh, you know, basically being uh, idiot proof to say the least. Yeah. I, I, every time I deal with Windows, we have a few editing machines that, you know, because we're running Adobe Premiere now, so we could do both. But a few machines that use Windows and I have to sit in front of a Windows machine for a couple minutes, I get frustrated. Yeah. <laughs> when I would have to go over to help my grandfather when he first got his computer and he's like, well, help me out here. And I'm looking at it and it takes me a minute. I'm like, I got to remember how to, all right, so st the, the little start button's down at the left, okay, and then my computer, that's right. right. And it, it used to be a time where it was, yeah, it was so fluid, and right. I know my knew, way uh, yeah. inside and out. Right, I, and, would, I would hack the, my dad's computer, like, and, and yeah. get it. He, my dad, I know, when uh, in the early age of the internet, when he tried to put that net nanny or whatever it was on the computer. Oh, yeah. I, I had it off in, like, a day, and, like, like net nannying him, and he was just so frustrated, he just gave mm -hmm. up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that reminds me. My every time uh, an adult in the house would bring home a new computer, they'd say, "Okay, don't touch, don't touch. This is very expensive." Right. But when the computer would break, who would they call to fix exactly. it? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Nine or ten year old me. So I remember one time my dad, I fixed his computer. He's like, "Okay, don't touch." And I was like, "Look, Dad, that's this is not how this is going to go. <laughs> uh, if I'm the one who can fix it, I'm I'm loading Diablo on this thing." And he decided that was fair. So. That, that's it. That is fair. I remember my dad, uh, he told us he was going to spend the weekend upgrading Windows 95 and we weren't to touch the computer. <laughs> that night, he had to call me in to figure out how to install Windows 95 <laughs> in the computer. Yeah. That, uh, <laughs> that, that happened really quick. He gave up pretty quickly. That was, that was a tough <laughs> install, too. I'll admit that. 95 was. For sure. For sure. Especially if you bought on floppy disks. Like we, <laughs> we did have it on floppy disks. 
It was uh, it was the the box was about the size of a shoebox and um, yeah. yeah. But uh, so you said you didn't start really getting into video games till 1989. But you were born were you born in '82 also? I was born in '82. Um, I remember. So I don't remember if I got an Atari 2600 Junior as a as a birthday gift for my Aunt Tammy first, or if I went down and played uh, Nintendo or NES at a friend's house first. But I, I very vividly remember the first time I played Super Mario Brothers. I had a friend named Kim. I was probably in, I don't know, kindergarten or first grade. Kim lived three houses down. I lived with my grandparents at the time. And I would go down and knock on her door, and she'd come running out, and we'd play. And one day I went over, and her mom answered, and she said, oh, Kim can't come out right now. She's playing Nintendo. You know how adults <laughs> said it in the 80s. Yeah, right. It was, it was so this crazy foreign word. Like, what is this Nintendo? Um, and so I went down to the basement, and I heard the, you know, boop, 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 of the Super Mario Brothers. And I was like, what is this? And I, I saw it. I fell in love. I saved chore money for nine months to buy my own NES. My mom has pictures of me sitting in my bed in Ninja Turtles pajamas, uh, the head twisted off this giant plastic Raphael piggy bank. Coins spilled out all over the sheets as I, was, I counted my money every night. And the deal was uh, she would pay the sales tax and pick me up a game if I saved up the $100 for the control deck. Uh, the joke was on her. Of course, it came to Super Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt. So I <laughs> right. Another game on top of that. But then the joke was on me because I chose the original Ninja Turtles by Konami in that oh, game. Oh, masochist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That right. damn, damn level was the last level of the game as far as I, as far as I knew <laughs> as a kid. Uh, I was pretty convinced that Shredder must be after that seventh bomb. <laughs> We managed um, to game genie to the level after that, but we couldn't figure out how to break through any walls in the van, so we just yeah. gave up. To all, all my entire goal was just to get to the van so I can drive the van around. That that was an achievement in itself. Sure, that was a, that was a lot of fun. You know, the really funny thing is um, how even now when we play games, we kind of make up our own. Uh, obstacles. We set our own goalposts. I remember as a teenager, I went back to that game and I beat the damn level. And I didn't care what came next because to me, beating the damn level was as big a deal as beating the game. Sure. Like I'd, I'd conquered this old this old obstacle and I really didn't need to keep playing anymore after that. It's more stressful, that that level. I mean, we keep calling it that damn level, that but damn that level. damn level. The stress, <laughs> yes. the time and and that you have to disarm the bombs and get through it. You're sweating. And I mean, that was a, that was undue stress on a young kid yeah. that... Uh, we we all lived through. We we all uh, went to war on that game and <laughs> it, took a few. It was years also on. a classic example of kind of BS NES design <laughs> because yeah. you know the interesting thing that you don't really think about as a kid is a lot of early games you know during the eighties and nineties were so difficult because people who made console games came from a background making arcade games. So the whole point was to make games as hard as possible to keep Eat quarters. getting quarters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you look at that damn level, and there's there are fire wheels spinning underwater. Uh, there's electric seaweed choking a lot of the the walls, and it's just it's like almost everywhere you move, you're taking a hit. And it's like, well, of course, because probably whoever made this had a background in arcade design and just wanted to make you you know, keep giving money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It was it was uh, Ultra was the title the the company they released it because of Nintendo's oh, yeah. weird weird laws about how mm -hmm. many. Uh, games a company can release they had such i mean nintendo was one of the reasons 
And th- <laughs> those rules helped us in the long run because, of course, there were some shitty games, but they had they were so worried about another like uh, ET Atari situation yeah. happening that they their uh, their standards were set really high. I still don't know how a lot of games got through them. Yeah, but uh, companies would just make like five or six shell companies to churn out. It was Konami, more, right? It was Konami was the main company, and but Ultra, Ultra was, was their, their shell company that they put out. I think LJN was another label, right, of Konami? I think LJN, yeah, they were they were the like the licensee games, and yeah. I so here's the thing: I think a lot of that, you know, I mean, you've probably seen an episode or two of Angry Video Games. Oh yeah, yeah, that's mm-hmm. where the the Ninja Turtle game. It's where it all started. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he rails against LJN games. I have to say though. I have a soft spot for A Nightmare on Elm Street. I actually really liked the game. I don't know if either you played that. On yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and it's it was okay. Fun. It was. It's a. It's a little. It's a. Yeah. It's a little weird. Same with Friday the Thirteenth. I don't know if that's LJN also, but I. I like yeah. that one also. Uh, and <laughs> I, I love um, Maximum Carnage on SNES. And yeah. that's an LJN game. Oh, they produced Back to the Future. They did. Oh. Which, which is not. Is a that a Back to the Future? No, game? no. Yeah. They took a game and slapped the Back to the Future <laughs> sticker on the cartridge once they were done. <laughs> Did you guys ever play uh, Back to the Future 2 and 3 for NES? I did not. That was what it was called. It was was both of them. Yes, 2 and 3. It was packaged. I remember 3. I I, I just remember there was a train, like a train jump sequence, right? I don't don't remember. I didn't get very far in it because that game was so weird. It was one of those games I rented as a kid, and I only had a weekend to figure it out, and I could not make heads or tails of it. But it definitely felt like a game that was something else first and then they just slapped the Back to the Future name on it because you were going around to these weird alien planets and I think it, it was very passable uh, references to Back to the Future. Like you'd see the Biffco building in the background and I think when you move to Back to the Future 3, the levels had an Old West theme and Marty wore yeah. a cowboy hat. But beyond that, like I didn't, I was jumping on these like toxic alien snails. I don't remember that in Back to the Future. That was yeah, a weird game. That's at the cutting room floor. A lot of those would be retrofitted almost. Uh, like they were designing the game at, like yeah. to be part of the movie and they didn't see the movie and then they're like, all right, this is what we got to do to make mm-hmm. it to make it match. But it's For funny sure. you say the, the renting. That was such a big part of our Nintendo culture, renting a game from either Blockbuster or you know wherever. You, got, you had a yeah. weekend to spend with the game. It was and a big deal too because absolutely. I remember every Friday my mom would take my sister and me to uh, my store was Video Safari later Blockbuster, and she'd say, "Okay, you can each rent uh, two movies or David go get two games." She knew what I was going to get, and it was like you know this is this is what I have to pick because the the video store was was far enough away that if I got a dud, she wasn't going to take sympathy, <laughs> you know, take pity on me and drive me back. Like I had to. Right. Yeah. I, that I, was your week. That was your weekend. And if you got a dud, I, you're screwed. I went through and looked at like the back of every box. Like, what are these screenshots? What's the description? I have to know. And I remember I always tried to, you know how you are as a kid, like, because that's your game, that's your pick for the next 48 hours. You really try to ascribe positive qualities to it. Like I, I rented a lot of hard games back then. I played Karate Kid. That game was tough. That was. It was really yeah. Like I was, my mind was blown when I found out it's only like five or six levels. But you could have fooled me. <laughs> and but I really was like, this game is pretty all right. I was just trying to justify it to myself. Yeah. Well, then. you had to because you had to spend your weekend with it. And also, exactly. your parents didn't understand why you needed three hours in the rental store. You like. Yeah, you need to make your decision. And and why why am I on the subject? You mentioned your sister. Did you ever get stuck renting the Barbie game? I didn't get stuck renting the Barbie game. Uh, I rented Little Mermaid ostensibly for her. She was like, "Oh, check the, you know, I want to see this game." And she never played it. But that game was actually all right too. So you know, 
okay. That's we all got right. stuck. That, that worked out for me there. My sister would occasionally be like, I get to pick the game, and it would always be Barbie. Oh, and then yeah. she played pink. Yeah, exactly. She'd play it for maybe five minutes and then make <laughs> my brother and I play it and watch us. And this game was so damn frustrating and hard. Yeah. But it, it, like every maybe every few months, when Lisa decided she was going to pick the game, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was always, always, always Barbie. And yeah, and the funny thing too is my sister played a fair amount of games back then. She was as down for you know Mario and Zelda as anyone else. Oh, hundred percent. If it had a if it had a Disney property on it, she had to try that too. Yeah, Disney uh, would often like Ducktales is still one of my favorite games mm-hmm. of all time. So, that game, yeah, that's a great game. Yeah, Disney Disney wasn't as bad as some other. Uh, what, what's that game you're searching for on Genesis constantly? Uh, it's Mickey Mouse. Um, it, oh, Castle Ca- of Illusion. Castle of Illusion. Yes, yeah. Castle. Everywhere I go, I, I see World of uh, Illusion. It's all over the place. Castle of Illusion is eluding me like the a physical i can yeah i know i can go online and ebay and just buy it but that's not the fun for me it's the hunt yeah. to find this game and i asked i went through i looked all at uh new york comic-con when we were we uh at uh RetroCon recently uh, outside of philadelphia um which is all eight, 70s 80s and 90s and video games everywhere yeah they seem to have everything but they have everything but i talked to every vendor i talked to them and like i don't have this game and uh, it's just (laughs) one of those weird ones i just can't it's not even for me it's for a friend um but uh, yeah there's there's some disney ones that they did all right on aladdin aladdin Aladdin. genesis was fantastic great yeah there's a good story we're having uh blake harris on uh also he wrote uh, console wars um, yeah, I know Blake. Yeah, Blake is he's he told us as soon as he's finished with his VR book he's writing, he's he's gonna call us up and then talk uh, console wars with us. But he tells the story of Aladdin. Uh, they I, have you read console wars? I have. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, the story about how they fought so hard to get the better version of Aladdin for Genesis over Super Nintendo. It, it's, it's just a it's a fascinating story. <laughs> the the money they put in to get a well programmed version of Aladdin and then. Then they just waited to see the SNES one tank, and theirs was like, mm-hmm. a, you know, a proper. It, it, it's strange too at a time now where you take it for granted, where everything is kind of an equal port, right? You know, um, yeah. Where back then, and you look, we talked plenty of times about Jurassic Park, how they're just two completely separate entities. Almost. We I hacked the SNES classic that we got, and I put the Jurassic Park, the first one, on there, and the second <laughs> one. Oh my God, they are horrible. Really <laughs> horrible. Yeah. I just picked up Rampage Edition while we were at RetroCon. Uh, Genesis, too. yeah, yeah, so. those were all right. Those were awesome. Yeah, yeah but the- I want to hack mine. I, I managed to get an SNES Classic as well. SNES is still my favorite console, and the one game, if I could only put one game on there, would be Donkey Kong Country Two. I think that's one of the best platformers uh, ever. Absolutely, I love it. mm-hmm. it's it's well, if if you probably already know it's easy, but it's it took me about five minutes to hack. It's I think uh, they designed it to be hacked, quite frankly. Yeah, I remember didn't Nintendo like bury a little like have fun sort of exactly. Message. There's a message in it, and then and yeah. every, everything fits in perfectly. Like when with the hack to the you don't even like if someone didn't know you're scrolling through it, people would think that these games were built into it. it, it they fit in the menu and everything. It's it's made to be hacked. That's awesome. That's awesome. I actually have a funny story about Blake Harris. Um, shortly after Stay Wild Listen came out, it was it was doing really well. And I got an email from a guy named Blake, and he was like, hey, you know, I'd really like to read your book in hardcover. Do you have plans to make one? I was like, hey, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. We don't have plans for hardcover yet. It's only available in ebook. 
you know, uh, let me know if you read it. I'd love to see a review from you. And then he emailed back and he goes, oh, yeah, we'll have to trade books sometime. I'm like, who is this guy? What is he talking about? And I didn't realize that it was Blake Harris who wrote Console Wars. <laughs> right. So, whose movie is optioned. I'm sorry, book is optioned for a movie by Seth Rogen and uh, Evan Goldberg, which makes me ask, has anyone came knocking at your door for a breakout movie? <laughs> not yet. But, you know, it's only like a month and a week or two old. So you never know. I might have the next Hackers of Silicon Valley on my hands. Who knows? Yeah, that's it would be a good anthology show, like Breakout. Like each episode mm-hmm. is a different story of of because uh, I mean, there's some drama there for, for some of those games. For sure. And for sure. They, they really are. Yeah. Personal stories. Um, a, a lot of just like burning the midnight oil. A lot of these guys just doing it. You know, and for, under for a the, deadline, yeah. under a yeah. De- under a deadline, or, or some just you know, f- they really did. You could tell these guys loved what they were doing too. Yeah, um, yeah. There was like I w- we were talking about um, uh, Wasteland, you know, and that you know that that game was successful and and that or mildly successful because it came at a time I guess it was late in the it was just late to the game I guess. And then also there's other competition. Yeah, yeah. And I think Wasteland, you know, was also one of those games that um, was also just poised to do better on newer hardware. Mm-hmm. But then uh, and then years later, like decades later, Brian Fargo puts a team together, does a, a, a Kickstarter, and creates Wasteland 2 with basically yeah. the same team. And yeah, it was, it's really cool to to see you know especially people from the same team come back decades later and make a make a sequel and especially in the case of Wasteland Two have it do as well or better than the original mm-hmm. of Kickstarter nonetheless yeah well raised they needed I think nine hundred thousand they raised almost three million on Holy Kickstarter no. yeah <laughs> and now there's a Wasteland Three under production oh so, great yeah that's that's good to hear I want to I want to go back circle back to SNES being your favorite console do you have a story we all have a sto- your story of you getting your Nintendo I've told our, ours at retrocon when we did the live podcast mm-hmm. they're all so similar but what about SNES uh, how about you tell us when you found out they're making an SNES because this was like the first like oh my goodness a next generation and then how you got your SNES yeah, uh, I found out about the SNES the way I'm sure a lot of of kids, educated readers from our generation did in Nintendo Power. Exactly. <laughs> um, and the funny thing is, at first, I was always a little bit behind the curve because, first of all, I was born in 82. And, you know, NES launched here in the States. They did the soft launch in New York in 85. But, like, as a, as a three-and-a-half-year-old kid, I didn't give a hoot about Mario. Yeah, so same, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you know, actually, the, I've always thought that kind of worked to my advantage because by the time the NES came around, I was able to get a lot of great games for cheap since the system was older, and the SNES kind of worked that way too. Uh, I told that story earlier about uh, my friend Jeff and I going to a, a live show, Carmen San Diego. We went to CompUSA. After that, we went to KB Toys in a mall, and they had a Super NES set up with Super Mario World, which is still, I think, one of the most maybe perfect games ever made absolutely it's hard too it's it's tough it, been... it is hard it was a really nice balance i think that mario games have lost between very accessible but you know kind of the the easy to pick up difficult to make. i would say challenging not hard it is challenging, it's challenging. Yeah. it is challenging on the snes classic i finished the star world beat the special world and now i have the like the fall color palette going on so i'm proud i was still able to do that well you're better um, than us my girlfriend and i got stuck in the vanilla cat what's it the vanilla um, oh, in the Vanilla Dome? The Vanilla Dome. The, yeah, we're still stuck in there. 
Yeah. <laughs> I still go back and I've played that game off and on through virtual console and uh, emulators off and on over the years. But, you know, I played the I played the Super NES for the first time at KB Toys, but I knew I wasn't going to be able to talk my mom into into getting one because she kind of just tolerated rather than encouraged my video game habit. Right. Um, and so what I did is I cut I took this box I cut a hole out of one side of the box, square-shaped hole, and I, I put in a reel of paper on a, on every sheet or so. I would I glued a cutout image of a screenshot from Nintendo Power, and I also cut out a controller and glued it to cardboard. So I'd hold my controller and stare at this piece of paper and pretend I was playing Street Fighter Two or whatever, and then I would scroll the paper to the next screenshot. It was a whole thing. I so that badly wanted to play a Super NES awesome. that I made a paper one. That that uh, is so that is such a relatable story. For, for, <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. it's, that's what we had as kids. We didn't have the internet where we could go on and see. We we had to wait till a magazine got delivered, and then we often would destroy that magazine and cut it to pieces mm-hmm. and and reorganize it in a notebook. And that I I, I've, I can relate completely hundred percent to that story. When did you yeah, finally get we're, one? We're, we're building shrines to these things that our paper routes or parents won't get us. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so the same thing kind of happened. I got, I remember my dad had a policy. Uh, my parents were divorced, which worked out in my favor because I had two sets of grandparents to, you know, like three or four households to visit on Christmas and everyone spoiled me. But my dad's policy was, okay, ask me for one big thing you want and don't ask anyone else. And I remember in 1994, I said, I want a Super Nintendo. So on Christmas morning, I unwrapped the Super Nintendo, and it came with Super Mario World and Super Mario All-Stars. So I had like five games to play right away. And then I took my I took Christmas money. I think I got like 60 bucks. But they, since the system had been out for th- a few years, I was able to pick up, uh, I think, Ninja Turtles 4, Castlevania 4, and maybe one other game in the bargain bin at KB Toys. I also bought Mortal Kombat 2. My stepmom explicitly said, do not use this money to buy Mortal Kombat 2. I bought Mortal Kombat <laughs> yeah, well, 2. Yeah, you, you weren't going to listen to that. No one was going to no, listen no, to that. No, no, of course not. Of course not. I, that's 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 funny. We have a similar story with the Super Nintendo. I think I may, might have yeah. got mine a little earlier, but my mom actually had to send away the the proof of purchase on the back of the Super Nintendo to get <laughs> All Stars. It was a mail order. And, oh, uh, nice. but I got, I got that with super Mario world. And then I did use my Christmas money that I got it wasn't much, but to get, I got adventure, super adventure Island and fuck oh, was man, that those game games. horrible. Those are fun. Those it, are hard. Games I, too. I loved adventure Island too. And then super adventure Island was such a drastic, like, like a difference from it. But then, it, you know, yeah. once I figured out how to, how to play it, it became more fun. But, For sure. You know, I was expecting like I would get like, a, you know, dinosaurs right away and be able to save them. And, you know, they're like, <laughs> but yeah, that's a similar story. And then when did you get Donkey Kong Country 2 and fall so um, out with it? The funny thing is I got the Donkey Kong Country games also from my dad and stepmom over successive years. My my stepsister had a friend, uh, Valerie, whom I later dated. It's a nice thing about you know, having a lot of siblings with friends. You get to borrow video games and maybe you date them. Uh, <laughs> uh, so my stepsister, Jen, went over to her friend's Valerie house. And we went over to pick her up and they were playing Donkey Kong Country, uh, which, of course, came out around the time I got my Super NES. So the, my birthday is in March. So, the, so that year for my birthday, same thing. My dad said, what do you want? And I said, Donkey Kong Country. So I got that. 
1995. That Christmas, he said, what do you want? And I said, well, I want Donkey Kong Country 2 because I love the first game. I beat it in like three days. And I thought like even as a kid, I couldn't really articulate it. I thought the game was beautiful, but it was kind of a very paint-by-numbers platformer. Mm -hmm. Donkey Kong Country 2 just kind of blew the lid off of that. I think it's one of the best platformers ever made, like I said. I love the level design. There's a lot of variety of gimmicks. They did a much better job you know, hiding secrets instead of just like dropping them down pits or behind walls that you'd have to throw barrels at arbitrarily. They had the the B bonus barrels. That game was just so much fun. And then I think for the next year, 1996, at Christmas again, I got Donkey Kong Country 3, which I also really enjoyed. But that game got, you know, they added RPG elements, which at the time meant fetch quests. And so that game was fun, but it also kind of wore out its welcome because you had to spend some time running between worlds, like hunting for items and stuff. But a really great trilogy overall. The Super Nintendo was just a spoil of riches of great games, especially platformers. Um, Squeezer, don't you have a similar story with uh, Donkey Kong Country? I, I, we talked about it on a podcast, didn't we? Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to break up your Super Nintendo love fest. I'll yeah, just you didn't have one, my, right? I'll just sit here with my Sega Genesis. <laughs> we did. We do. We kind of stole the concept of console wars, and we've pitted the Super. I grew up with the Super Nintendo. He grew up with the Genesis. We pitted them against each other, and then uh, the poor soul. We went Nintendo sixty four against PlayStation one. I got my ass handed to me. Yeah. Wait, wait, Squeezer. Which side of the fence were you on? Well, it, that's the that's the thing. And well. I always wanted to, as far as Super Nintendo goes, it's like the one system even over the years of going back and buying old systems up, I, mm-hmm. I still never had. Um, okay. And to this day, still don't. It's on the to-do <laughs> list. One day. One day. Um, <laughs> after I've replaced the hot water heater, and then I'll get the... Oh, um, adult thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The whole adult thing. Speaking rad years, a little tangent here. My uh, hot water heater qualifies as, as rad year material <laughs> it's from the 80s 1990 this oh thing, man oh yeah i called the manufacturer and gave him the serial number and they're like yeah this thing was built 27 years ago yeah before the super nintendo even came out <laughs> they're supposed to last wow. like 15. yeah so yeah so after that then i'll buy my super nintendo um but you grew up with the genesis i grew up with the genesis and i i still to this day i test like my favorite game of all time and i've talked about it twice on this show even the live show have you ever played Landstalker? Oh yeah, that like, game's a lot of fun. Yeah, it, see, it's I I preach this game like You're the it, second it's, person I ever heard who knew that game. <laughs> I, I it's, it's one of those games up. where I'm I I always wanted the Super Nintendo, but I'm glad I got a Genesis because I got to play Landstalker because it, it to me it's one of my favorite games of all time. It just it, just so much fun, but it's so brutally hard because the the whole isometric look and without yeah. any shadow and just <laughs> oh it was. It, like I was saying, like the amount you figure out the amount of torque it takes to crack a Genesis controller because you just <laughs> twist it in your hands. Um, now, now tell David where you stand on the PS One and sixty four. Well, the PS One is special to me because it was the first system that I, I got my NES um, uh, for my birthday from an aunt and uncle, I believe, and then uh, and that was might have been like nineteen eighty nine ninety because I got it at like same time. I think I got along with like Super Mario Brothers three. Like I got, they, yeah. bought, they someone else bought me that. Like right. it was a package deal. Like this is this big birthday gift. Sure. And, mm-hmm. and then like screw the party. We run upstairs. Everyone hooks <laughs> yeah. up in the bedroom and right. party was over. Which I'm sure the adults love because everyone was yeah, probably everyone getting home. hammered down in the base downstairs. <laughs> um, and then uh, yeah, Genesis was a Christmas gift. But so the PlayStation was my first system that I saved up. I had a 
uh, like doing odd jobs and stuff, make, raking sand traps and picking balls at the local driving range and stuff like that, um, that I saved up. So it had a place in my heart. And I was that kid that would, because this is like early internet and we were just starting to be mean to each other. 96, 97. Yeah. 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 We were we starting were like to be, people 15, were starting, people were 14. starting to learn to be mean to each other and con- real console wars, like bitterness, even yeah, though Genesis. Lines were drawn. Right? Lines yeah. were drawn. And, and people could go somewhere and find other people to fight with yeah. or, or side right. with. All, right. my, all my friends had N64. And they were just brutal to me. <laughs> just, but I, I loved my PlayStation because I got it. And I wanted the, the DVD player, too. That was a big oh, thing. Yeah. It's like, wow, I have a DVD player now. Uh, I think Mad Max or uh, Road, Road Warrior and um, I forgot what other. It was the first DVD. Lethal Weapon 2, I think, were the first two DVDs I ever bought to go with it. Just, so, not that it's yeah. important. Um but so, yeah, I, I had the pick and eventually I did buy a 64 and fell in love with it and loved all the games that came with it. But then when it came time to do this console war, I didn't do so well at defending the PlayStation as much as I should have. And I'm t- still taking a lot of heat yeah. for it because <laughs> I, I picked I, I didn't pick I could have gone easily and just picked all the top games like all the Final Fantasy and Metal Gear and just, you know hammered at you but i picked games that meant a lot to me so yeah i i had like time crisis and um what were some of the you other the demo disc. the demo <laughs> disc because at the time i i couldn't i didn't i bought wipeout xl um because it was in like the bargain bin and then the only other thing i had was a demo disc that played with it came with it and i would just play those single level demos to no end until like for probably months until I was able to get another game. Where, where did yeah. you fall on that iteration of consoles, David? Well, guys, I'll tell you, but my ants will take about 40 to 50 seconds to load. Okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, definitely Nintendo 64. Uh, because, you know, so as that was the last console that came out when I was still young enough that I didn't have to get a job. So, you know, kind of the same... It's kind of the same philosophy when you were renting games as kids. When your parents would say, "What new console do you want?" You have to. You can only choose one. It has to be a good choice because this is the console you're gonna have to stick with for right, years. Right. And I, I stuck with Nintendo. And the thing is, I thought PlayStation was a, a revolutionary system. It was a great system. But my argument against it is that you, if you talk about a lot of the cream of that console's crop, for me, that's Resident Evil One and Two, Final Fantasy Seven, Metal Gear Solid. I played those on PC. I could not play Ocarina of Time, Goldeneye, or Super Mario right. 64 on anything but N64. Right, and Ocarina uh, of Time. So I, I was pretty firmly in the N64 camp. So, so was I, and I mean, because I was a Nintendo fanboy to the to the death, especially in 96. I was just like, screw PlayStation, screw the Saturn, which, I mean, the Saturn did a good job of screwing itself. Sure did. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I went right in for the N64, but that was a situation where those games never were discounted, really. So you no. really had to get into Blockbuster and rent one before, because if you got stuck with Superman 64 and you paid $80 for that, you were going to be pretty pissed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think one advantage, so... I uh, even though I grew up a Nintendo kid, one another the advantages of my parents uh, kind of hating each other and divorcing <laughs> was that at my dad's house, my half brother had a Genesis, so I could go over there and we would rent Genesis games. So I, I got to play. I didn't play Landstalker until I was in high school, and a friend, uh, a big a fellow Zelda nerd, told me about it, and I downloaded the ROM and played Landstalker and really enjoyed it. But then going to high school. I had a friend who had a PlayStation, and I had an N64 and a PC. So what we'd do is on Friday nights, he'd come over 
to stay for the weekend, he would immediately jump on uh, my PC to play Diablo on Battle.net or my, my N64. I would load up the PlayStation. And the great thing is I had a black and white TV in my bedroom. So I first played Resident Evil on a black and white TV, which is just so that's good. That's oh, perfect. That's Jesus yeah. Word, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I wouldn't have been able to sleep. And it was, it was a lot of fun. I was like, wow, like I really saw what I was missing. And I was really glad that, you know, the two sides, <laughs> the two, two, two generals, I guess, in the console war were able to kind of parlay. And it, it was always, I really look back fondly on those experiences because, you, you know, as a kid, you buy into the console war, even though it's totally manufactured. But uh, I think Nintendo and all of their opponents over the years have always had really great games. And yeah, now I can say, well, I, I played those other, you know, the greatest PS1 hits on PC, but not then I didn't. Then I wanted a PlayStation. In fact, I went and bought one so I could play Resident Evil 2. Um, but yeah, I, up until Breath of the Wild this year, I think Ocarina of Time was probably my favorite game ever uh, i would still go back and replay it almost yearly so it, it is fantastic it, it, i mean i remember the first time i got it for christmas because uh, i believe it came out around thanksgiving it came it out did, yeah and i got it for christmas that year and i was immediately that day in my room uh, i had this tiny little 13 inch you know tube television <laughs> and it, uh it was that was all i did until christmas break was over <laughs> the crazy thing was i i had played zelda since the beginning i had zelda on nes uh friend had zelda 2 i actually liked that game i love zelda 2 it's a fun game yeah. It's a different game. It is a game. fun game. I, I think there are valid complaints against it. It is pretty sure. grindy and it is really difficult. Right. But it's, it's uh, way different it's, than Zelda 1. And it was, it was a fun departure. I, I loved visiting the towns and, and all, the, all the stuff you can do on it. Um, yeah, it, it, it was a lot of fun. And, but the thing is, on, on Super Nintendo, I completely skipped Link to the Past because on, on SNES... By that time, I was also playing PC games. So on consoles, I would play platformers and fighting games and pretty much everything else on PC. So when Ocarina of Time came out, the same friend who had a PlayStation, by that time he'd gotten an N64, and I saw it at his house, I'm like, wow, like Zelda has really changed. And what really stood out for Ocarina of Time, he let me borrow it. Uh, and I remember solving the, the Deku tree, going on to Hyrule Field and watching the sunset for the first time. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that was the first time I felt I, like I forgot I was playing a game. I felt like I was in a living, breathing world just watching the sunset. And all these little touches, like the, the howl of the wolf, and you could hear in the distance Hyrule Bridge cranking up to protect right. the town right. from the zombies at night. It was just this magical world for the first time. It was just this formative experience and for me. The music, everything was perfect. In that game and, and even the starting how it didn't start with the, the theme song which you expected it to i plugged it in it's like it has it's like that flute song the ocarina mm-hmm. thing, yeah. you're like what is yeah. this and it's just galloping horse it's very ominous and and written like uh what's that word atmospheric at the mm-hmm. opening it is it's just and one thing i loved about uh, the n64 uh, in particular was that nintendo well nintendo's games in particular first party games wasted no time you didn't have a bunch of logos they were just boom right, right. at the screen mm-hmm. and because they immediately wanted to establish a mood i think in ocarina of time they saw they flashed an n64 logo for like three seconds and then you had, uh, I think it faded in with the moon rising yep. and the opponent galloping across the field. It was just, oh, everything about that game. Yeah, you think you heard it first before you even saw it. You heard the, the galloping and then and then it came in the frame. And it's, yeah, it's just really, it, it set the tone for what you're about to, you're yeah. about to be part of something. That level of yes. freedom riding opponent, like you would just get lost <laughs> just riding through Hyrule Field. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think I think the thing that kind of blew my mind was Epona is actually optional. Like as soon as you see that screen, you're like, I want the horse, but you can actually go the whole game and never get the horse. Right. Mm-hmm. But you but if you, if you miss out, if you don't. <laughs> yes, you really do. You really do. So uh, quick sidebar on Zelda. Did you play? Um, uh, what was no, I'm forgetting the, the Game Boy game that I was obsessed Link's with. Awakening? Link, Link's Awakening. Link's Awakening. I actually, so I had, I got a Game Boy. That was another <laughs> gift from my dad and stepmom. Uh, but I didn't really play. I, I don't think I've played. A correction. I've, the only handheld Zelda I've played is A Link Between Worlds, which I really liked. That's great. Um, mm-hmm. And it's because so when I got a Game Boy again, I was really into platformers and puzzle games. But after that, I was mostly playing consoles and PCs, so I didn't really have any need for a handheld. And then by the time I was old enough to drive, uh, you know, I played Game Boy in the car, but when you're driving, you're, you're driving. And then when you get to a place, it's your job or your friend's house or, or class or what have you, and you don't have any time to play. So I didn't have another handheld until I got a DS. And then I did go back and kind of catch up on games, but I still to this day have never played A Link to the Past or Minish Cap or any of them except Link Between Worlds, I think. Uh, well, uh, I, I, I get what you're saying where, you you know, the Game Boy was mainly... I, Tetris was the easiest game to just get in the car and play until you got to the place. But uh, since I had like a brother and sister and our house wasn't huge, you know, we were uh, upper, lower, middle class. (laughs) So, uh, you know, to have a Game Boy and be able to hide away somewhere and play that, play that game with no one else bothering you, no one looking over your shoulder. To me, that was the the first Zelda game I really got immersed in. Cause before that we were playing Zelda, you know, the first Zelda game, it was usually my older brother playing and me watching him play. And, you know, occasionally when he wasn't around, I got to play it myself, but that's how it worked. And this was the first time there was no one else. It was all me. It was all my game. You know, it was my game as my Game Boy. And I was, you know, I, and it, I really got swept up in the game. And if someone was looking over your shoulder. I can play that because I know that everyone I, I know who talks about Link's Awakening just raves about it. It is it's it's really fantastic. fantastic. It made up for me not having uh, Link to the Past. Like, that was, that was my that was my saving grace. My... my uh, so what's that called when you uh I'm not good with words. When you what? <laughs> almost like, it was almost like a nice substitution. Yes. Substitution. Thank you. There yeah, you go. He's an author. He's an author. <laughs> the scribe <laughs> knows what to say. The pressure I felt there was was pretty deep, you guys, but I, I, I pulled you out of the chair. So uh, what do you play? You you mentioned you have the Switch and the PS4. Uh what's your what's your go to nowadays in uh, two thousand eight almost eighteen? So the, the great irony of, of writing, especially writing about video games, is you don't have a lot of time to play video games. I'm, I'm working on the second Stay Well and Listen book right now. I'm, I'm working on a 70,000 words and counting feature on the Quake franchise, which should be going up in the next few weeks. Um, when I do have time to play, I, I just love Breath of the Wild. I... <laughs> I write as a freelancer for a number of sites. One of them is shacknews.com. And my, my boss, uh, the editor-in-chief, Asif Khan, is, is, uh, he lives like 10 minutes away. And he's like, you know, you, you're going to have to come over eventually. We're going to have to record Game of the Year podcast. You're going to have to finish Breath of the Wild. And I honestly kind of don't want to because I'm just enjoying being in that world. It's Ocarina of Time for me all over again. Uh, so, yeah, these days it's, it's Breath of the Wild. Um, I still I, – I end up playing – Older games more than I play newer stuff because I tend to write about games from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So uh, in the process of writing this Quake article, uh, I've been replaying a lot of the Quake games. I wrote 
an expansive feature on Doom earlier this year and got to replay those. I, I tend to replay Doom pretty often because it's a great game to just play. You can play a level or two and then walk away, uh, which is really nice. And then with the Super NES Classic, I, I love Mario World. I think I... I stood in line for that thing and paid $80 just to play Mario world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Again. So yeah, really kind of Mario world doom breath of wild is, is my trifecta right now. That's not a bad trifecta. Where can we, uh, uh once this quake article is up, where can we find this? It'll be on uh, shacknews.com. Uh, you can read the doom article there right now. I think it's called doom to hell and back. You can Google that. Um, I spoke to, the directors of uh, last year's Doom games to do a making of, and then also to John Romero about some elements of the, the classic Doom games. Uh, the Quake article should be up, um, I'm hoping for by Thanksgiving or a little after, because this has been uh, on a burner since about July. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> and we, we, we know all about done. those kind of, I mean, and, and, t- and what we do We've we've been we've been threatening to launch our YouTube show for a year now, and uh, but but it's on the burner. It's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but no, that's <laughs> how, that's how that we know exactly that route. And uh, so, uh, David, where what else? If we want to, I mean, we could talk. I would talk to you for another two hours about video games, and we're definitely going to have to have you back on. Uh, because this has been a lot of fun, and uh, you know we see a lot of similarities between the way the two of us grew up with video games and the way you did. So it's it, it's been uh, a great addition to the rad years, and I feel like there's a lot of topics we could talk to that we could just have you call in and <laughs> and, yeah. and add a and sound and be the smart one for a change. <laughs> uh, but uh, if you want to give an, another plug uh, for uh, breakout. Um, a, Amazon, uh, bookstores, uh, uh, just give that website for your publisher again for us. Sure, sure. Well, first of all, thanks. Thank you guys very much. The, the pleasure has been all mine. It's been a really fun conversation with both of you, and I'd love to come back whenever you'd like to have me. Um, as far as a plug, you can find Breakout at local bookstores or on Amazon or uh, check out Schiffer Publishing. I think it might be schifferbooks.com. Um, as for what else I'm working on, uh, I have a book of interviews with game developers coming out within the next, also within the next couple of weeks. That'll be on uh, storybundle.com. If you haven't heard of Storybundle, it's a humble bundle type deal uh, where you pay what you want for a selection of books on a particular topic. In this case, it's game development. They run one about every three months or so. Oh, so awesome. my book is called uh, Game Dev Stories. And I, it's it, one of the interviews I really like in there is I talked with a bunch of people, magazine editors, game developers, about the rise and fall of cheat codes in video games, which is a subject I'm sure is, is near to dear to your hearts as it is to mine. Absolutely. 100%. 100%. I was so um, mad that GTA 5 did not come with cheat codes. I could not tell you how I, I miss cheat codes. I never used them. Well, as a kid, I would use them to beat games, but I'd always feel kind of unsatisfied after, so I'd go back and play them legitimately. And over the years, cheat codes kind of became almost my reward. Like, now that I beat Doom legitimately, I'm going to put on God mode, give myself a rocket launcher, and just smoke everything. It gave you um, a chance to explore the levels, too, and just kind of see what yeah. what they did. And the power was intoxicating. <laughs> it was. It was. In fact, uh, to Squeezer's point, I think um, at the end of Doom 2, you know, you had to fight the giant head, the icon of sin. But only by clipping through a wall using a cheat code did you find out that the actual final boss was John Romero's severed head. <laughs> and that's not, you know, that again, that's not something you'd ever see without using the clip cheat code. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah. Breakout. Um, stay a while and listen. Uh, DavidLCraddock.com. I, I list all my books there. And I also, after a book comes out, 
I write what's called a breakdown post where I get really nitty gritty about the writing process and people seem to enjoy those. Um, if you're into fantasy, I have a book called Heritage, book one of the Garden Chronicles, which is aimed at young adults, but uh, older readers have really liked it. That's out. It was published in 2014 by Taiki Books, and the sequel should be out next year. And I'm also going to be starting a, a series of novelettes, about 50, 60 pages each, another epic fantasy, uh, pretty soon here. So lots of stuff on the burner. You can check it out at uh, davidlcraddock.com or follow me uh, on Twitter at davidlcraddock. I got to add some of that. I love some good fantasy. I got to add some of that to my, is it is Kindle eBooks? You have a lot of those on eBooks? Yes. Yes. You can get in a heritage in paperback or uh, on Kindle and other eBook platforms. Yeah, Very Ken, cool. Kindle was, uh, I got to admit, if it wasn't for the Kindle, I wouldn't read as much as I, I do. Oh day. man. I mean, it's, I, you know, I think it's great. Like a lot of people you know, turn up their noses at people reading on phones, man. When I'm in Squeezer. the doctor's office, <laughs> first of all, I don't want to carry a lot of electronics. I just have my phone. It's so convenient to be able to pull up the Kindle app on your phone and read while you're waiting for stuff. To happen. Exactly. Like I got stuck <laughs> waiting for tires on my car that I didn't need. I would have to, I was like, Oh, it's all right. I'll just, I spent an hour, 90 minutes finishing a book. And you know, that, that was not possible years you, ago. You loved your Kindle so much. You bought two. I did. I just, Squeezer lost one of mine. Uh, I didn't lose it. I set it on the roof of the car and we drove away. Right. Oh. But we were loading much more expensive equipment, uh, like $30,000 cameras. And um, yeah, the Kindle was a byproduct of that. So I, I immediately, we had a big, a big uh, music festival coming up that I was going to be doing directing video for and there'd be a lot of downtime. So I think uh, the next day I bought a new Kindle because that's how valuable it was to me. And you also wrote a book um, detailing uh, like the history of Blizzard, correct? Yes, uh, that is Stay a While and Listen, book one. That is also in uh, paperback. There are two editions. There's one called Stay a While and Listen, narrative edition, which is no frills. And then Stay a While and Listen, book one, legendary edition, which has a bunch of behind the scenes stuff. And that is also available as an ebook. That's very cool. The first time when I built my first PC, it was I built it in mind to play StarCraft. <laughs> That's what. Oh, man. I was, yeah. I was, That's a great that game. Was I my bought goal. Um, StarCraft Remastered a couple months ago. And I've been uh, picking away at that too. I'm surprised you haven't gotten in on that. Well, they actually released um, for free. Um, uh, oh, Starcraft, Starcraft, too, right? Starcraft on uh, uh, that you could just to download because they they released a remastered version. Right. And but I you can you can get the basic version which I got because I'm fairly cheap. <laughs> um, that game I, still I, holds up, though. It does. Right. It, it's a, it's a, a fun, as violent and gory as it may be, even from the distance that it's it's drawn. It's still a, right. a very pretty game. It, it I is. never played StarCraft. The one game I still hold out on, I, and then that uh, you still download on my Mac. I play um, uh, uh, Solitaire. Oh, okay. no, Solitaire, <laughs> uh, Stronghold, and Stronghold Crusader, the Castle Sims. I don't oh, know. Oh, nice. You remember those? But yeah, those are those are the last two. Uh, games that boot up on my MacBook Pro because you can still uh, you're there's I, I forgot the company I downloaded they're five bucks each and I'm like all right I'm getting them the stronghold <laughs> games Castle nice. Sims but yeah I I know you wax eloquently about Starcraft quite often Squeezer uh, <laughs> but yeah this has been a lot of fun so definitely check out David Craddock Breakout how the Apple II launched the PC gaming revolution and everything else he, this man he makes all these stories that don't seem like they'd be interesting so interesting and so accessible you're really missing out if you don't give this book a read david thanks so much for joining us uh this has been so much fun thank you for having me guys i had a blast thanks so much uh well this has been the ride years podcast i'm rk i'm squeezer and we're joined by of course 
David Craddock. David Craddock. Uh, and we'll talk to you next week on uh, the Rad Years podcast. See you.